Our reading this evening is taken from Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 24. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make the same to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Well, as we approach this this evening, a, a few little books that you may find helpful, and if you would like some of these, please do speak to Stephen. Stephen will be able to do a good deal, and any other books that we mention in uh, this series, he will also be able to, to, to do something for you, I'm sure, so grab him over tea and coffee. A couple of books that you might find helpful, compel them to come in. This is a good place to start as we think about this doctrine. Compel them to come in by Donald McLeod. Really, really helpful, really easy to understand, short chapters in it and it might be able to give you a little handle. Another good place to start is this, Five Points by John Piper. Again, really short. You can see by the thickness of it that it's even shorter than Donald's book. Uh, really short, really helpful if you just want to get a handle and wrestle with some of these concepts a little bit more. Or if you want to go a little bit higher up in your reading skills, a Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Again, another really, really helpful book. I think at the end of this series, Nigel and myself will... Uh, Maybe, maybe give the opportunity for a question and answer session uh, over a cup of tea and coffee. So if you do have any questions that you would like us to answer on some of these subjects that we're covering in our foundation series, do save them up uh, and we'll hopefully be able to uh, look at them together. Well, well, as we get into this this evening, my aim tonight is not to beat you or thump you over the head with this doctrine. It's not to jump all over you with this. We realize that this is something that has been contested, that there are people who disagree with this doctrine, but it is something that we believe. It is something that we are not ashamed to believe. And what we want to say is that often this is, it's part of Calvinism that is widely known. It's, it's got that name. But what we want to say tonight is that it's not Calvin's. It's not Augustine's who Calvin based it on, or it's not his. It's really Scripture itself. So we go right back to the source, we go right back to what the Bible says for our doctrine. 
Now, if we misunderstand this, sometimes Reformed doctrine, as Presbyterians, we, we wear our Reformed doctrine like a badge of honor, and it can puff us up with pride. Well, a quote from Ian Hamilton says this. Ian, a great theologian, says, to be a proud Calvinist is an oxymoron. What does he mean by that? To be a proud Calvinist is really a contradiction of terms. You cannot be both of those things, because as we understand the doctrines of grace, what do we see? It humbles us here this evening. So, that's what we want to happen as we, as we look at this, as we wrestle with this. We don't want to have it as a, a badge of honor above other people who maybe don't understand this or don't believe it. Instead, our, our very response to the doctrine of election or predestination should be, Lord, why me? Look at how good you have been to me, how unworthy I am of this. And so, the first piece of this puzzle came a few weeks ago as Nigel thought about total depravity. And here's what John Piper says. This is, this is really helpful for us as a starting point. He says this, if all of us are so depraved, I'll come up for us on the screen, if all of us are so depraved that we cannot come to God without being born again by irresistible grace of God, then it is clear that the salvation of any of us is owing to God's election. What Calvin is really, or what Piper is really saying there is that we cannot save ourselves, right? We cannot save ourselves. It has to be by God's will and grace. And so, the outcome of this evening, what is it? I don't want us to just go away with more knowledge this evening. The outcome of this evening, what I want us to have at the very end of this, of our time together as we dig into Romans 8 and 9, is that we will see our God as more loving and more gracious than we did whenever we walked in that we would see how undeserving we are, that we would see how truly amazing His grace is, and that we would feel the weight of this tonight. We'd feel the weight of what it means to be called and adopted and justified and indwelt by the Spirit and sanctified. It is my prayer that it will humble us, it will drive us to evangelism, and it will transform our very prayer lives tonight. So, let's dive in. We live in a world that is full of conditions. Our world has loads of conditions. A few weeks back, Dad and myself tried to get uh, something to eat. We were down in Belfast, and we had to produce a, a COVID passport, and it felt like we had to jump through so many hoops that you almost needed a, a utility bill, and you needed proof of identification, and you needed your birth certificate, and you needed nearly everything to just to have some chicken and chips, right? There were, there were conditions that had to be met. And there are conditions that have to be met in so many walks of life. If you want to go to university, you've got to get the grades. There's a condition. If you want to drive a car, there's a condition. You've got to have a driving license. You've got to do a driving test. You've got to have insurance. You've got to have MOT if your car is a little bit older. There are conditions. If you want to be a politician, for those who want to be politicians, there's a condition. You've got to get enough votes if you want to represent people. You see, life is full of conditions. Conditions are all around us. Scores, results, references, votes. And so our world thinks that whenever we come to salvation, surely there's conditions. Surely there's conditions that should be placed upon us. What must I do to be saved? And if we were to ask that question for the very first time, we would think to ourselves, well, I'm going to have to be 
a good person. I'm going to have to do more good than bad. That's what lots of the world religions say. Or maybe I'm going to have to give the, the institution of the church X amount of pounds. I'm going to have to pay him away in. What, what does it mean to be saved? How can I be saved? Do I need to pass a test? Do I need to be able to, to quote either 10 verses of Scripture? Do I need to know the, the longer and shorter catechism from back to front? What do I need? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The good news of the gospel. And, and so it's true for all of us that, that, that this unconditional election that comes to us, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. There are no conditions. How can that be? We struggle with the very concept. In my childhood, I, at primary school, always wanted to go on to the SALB library bus. It would come, I don't know, it would come once a term, and like the chosen ones would get to go on this SALB library bus. I have never been on the SALB library bus in my life. I was never chosen from primary one all the way through to primary seven. I never got chosen. Now, why did I not get chosen? Probably because I was talking too much to someone beside me or annoying someone in class or throwing a rubber or doing something that I shouldn't have been doing. There were conditions. If you're going to get to go onto the library bus, you're going to have to be a good boy, right? Conditions, conditions, conditions. And yet, whenever it comes to this and it comes to the gospel and God saving people, what does it say? Unconditional election, no conditions. The gospel is extended to us freely. Those who believe shall be saved. Now, you're saying to me, John, right, we've made a little bit of a start into this. It's free, there's no conditions. Well, then what about free will? How does that work? If God saves people unconditionally, if He elects them, if He predestines them to salvation, well, are we all just robots? Puppets on a string. Well, that's the, the, the criticism that's leveled at us, right? But none of us here know that to be our experience. If we are believers here tonight, as far as we know, the gospel was extended to us, and we responded freely, didn't we? Maybe you were sitting in Hill Street at a, at a mission or in one of our services, and you responded freely. There was, there was no one pressing you as far as you were aware around you. You came freely. And so that is true. You freely received the gospel as it is preached. You freely received it. You repented of your sins, and you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. True. Did God predestine you? Yes. It's also true. One does not trump the other. Both are equal. Both are true. That's hard for us sometimes to understand, but it is the way it is. God elects us, and we respond freely. Now, we'll think about how that works out a little bit later in our series with irresistible grace. Actually, what's happening there, we don't see it at that moment, but God is drawing us to Himself. He's opening our eyes, but we'll think about that a little bit further down. For now, what we need to understand, free will, yes, we respond freely, and God predestines us. Both are equal and true. And so, a little helpful illustration for what we're doing here this evening, what God is letting us see in Romans chapter 9, it's a little bit like this. He's, he's opening up the bonnet, as it were, of salvation, 
and he's taking us alongside himself, and he's pointing to different things, and he's showing us what they are and what they do. So think of it as if we're under the hood of the bonnet, uh, we're, we're looking at salvation tonight, we're looking at what's going on, and the Lord's telling us, he's revealing to us certain aspects of what is going on in the engine. Now, Again, this evening, some people might say, we don't believe in predestination. We don't believe in this doctrine of unconditional election. And our response has to be this. You, you have to believe something. It's all over the pages of Scripture. It's, it's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. So you're going to have to believe something. Scripture says it. Daniel read it for us just a few moments ago. What would you do with Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, whenever it says this? The Lord did not set His affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because of the Lord loving you. Or again in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. Or Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, for He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to adoption as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. We could pick a hundred more verses where this is all over Scripture. So, we have to do something. We have to believe something with predestination. We can't ignore it. We can't push it away. We have to believe something. So, what do we believe? Well, here's a helpful definition that's going to come up for us on the screen. It's from J.I. Packer. I find this really helpful as I was preparing for this evening. It's a really simple, I hope a simple definition for us. That before creation, God selected out of the fallen human race those whom He would redeem, bring to faith, justify, and glorify in and through Jesus Christ. And so, this is the doctrine of predestination or unconditional election. Now, in the Romans 8 and Romans 9, I want us to see four things. And the first is this, salvation belongs to our God. That's what we sing. That's what we started our time together with. Salvation belongs to our God. This is how the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you're new with us, as Presbyterians, we're based upon a doctrinal framework called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It has two catechisms, a, a longer and a shorter. The, the shorter is, is a good place for our young people to start, and then the longer expands. So, we're in the, the shorter catechism. It's really a, a distilling down of what we believe from Scripture. And so, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 20, says this, God having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, and did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery, and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. It's a little definition of, of what's going on. Now, some people will say salvation belongs to the Lord, but actually what's going on is God just peers down the corridor of time. He looks down the corridor of time, and God sees who's going to respond to the gospel. And then He says, well, those people I'll predestine. 
That's what some people refer to the doctrine as. That is an error in the doctrine. Because actually what we're falling back into there is a condition. It's as if God looks down the the corridor of time. He sees those who are going to respond, and he says that those are predestined. There's a condition, the ones who respond first. It's almost like God can see the exam paper before it's coming. That is wrong. It's an error on this doctrine. Instead, what we want to see, that in Romans chapter 9 and throughout Scripture, God elects on an unconditional basis. And if He doesn't do that, how would we ever have assurance? If there were conditions put upon us, if it was down to ourselves, if it was all to do with us, then surely we would every week, every day, be asking this question, have I ticked all the right boxes? Have I done enough? Am I still saved? Is God going to release me? Have I, have I met these conditions? See how that would start to eat us up and destroy us? Instead, look at Romans 9 and verse 11. Romans 9 verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So the Lord does not pick down the corridor of time and then elects the people that will respond. He doesn't do that. Instead, He elects unconditionally from His gracious, sovereign will. And then He sets His love on people, on the people whom He wishes. And so God has planned in the purposes of love who he will adopt into his family, the children that he will save. And then what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue them. As Jesus comes to this world, it's a rescue mission to save those whom the Father had sent him to save. And so next week, as we look into the the limited atonement or definite atonement, Nigel will start to unfold that for us, a question that'll whet your appetite for that. Are there any in hell for whom Christ died? It's a question for us to mull over between now and next week as we will go deeper into this. But God sends His Son to rescue the bride that is the church. Why? So that the bride would then respond through praise and glory, exaltation, and to magnify the Lord as He saves. Salvation belongs to our Lord. And that should make us tonight say, amen, praise the Lord that it belongs to Him and not to us, because if it was anything to do about us, surely we would lose it. We know how corrupt we are inside, how weak and how feeble we are, feeble we are. If it was anything to do with us, we would lose it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then secondly, it's God who executes mercy and judgment. Is this unfair? Is this doctrine unfair? Well, Paul preempts that. Look at verse 14. Chapter 9 and verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. See, lots of people hear this doctrine and they have a knee-jerk reaction against it. It's a little bit like 
I, I went home from church today. I took off my shirt and I put on a, a T-shirt and it, it had shrunk in the, in the tumble dryer and it was really uncomfortable. I was like, this T-shirt's got so, so much tighter. What's going on, right? It, it, this doctrine's a little bit like that, isn't it? We, we start to explore it and it's a little bit uncomfortable for us. We, we feel it sort of in around us. It's tight on us as, as, we, as we try to grapple with it and wrestle with it. What's the alternative to the Reformed doctrine? Well, the alternative is a doctrine called Arminianism. And that just, what it really means is that, that a person is saved upon them meeting some sort of condition. They respond to God, and as they respond, it's like they come halfway and God comes halfway. And so it's dependent upon you, what you have done and what another person hasn't done. And so we say that this doctrine of ours, of unconditional election that we see all over Scripture, it's not unjust. In fact, the other is unjust. Because the condition of responding, of coming halfway, that's unjust, that's unfair, because what about the people who can't fulfill that condition? What about the people who don't know about that condition? What about the people who are unable? It's performance-based. So verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 9. So then it depends not on human will or exhortation, but on God who has mercy. Well, then the argument might go like this. If God has sovereignly chose to give His grace to some sinners and withhold His grace from others, surely there is a violation of justice. Well, let's think about it like this. Imagine that there are three people on death row, and these three people are coming before the judge, and they've already been sentenced, and three of them have, all three of them have been condemned to death. And at the last moment, the judge within his rights says to one of these people, I will have mercy on you. I'll show you grace. You can have your life. You can walk free. The other two, they still have to pay the price. Now, is there injustice in that? Absolutely not. All three deserve the death penalty. Two are still going to pay it. One has been given this grace, this mercy that, that will result in them hopefully praising the judge and worshiping and, and giving glory to the judge. But there is not injustice. In fact, justice is being executed. But does this mean that the judge has to show grace and mercy on everyone? Well, no, it doesn't. So some argue, why doesn't God save everyone? If God allows these sinners to perish, is He treating them unjustly? Well, of course not. One group receives grace, and the other group receives justice. No one in unconditional election receives injustice. And so verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Scroll down with me to verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Paul is saying here there is no injustice in God giving grace to some and not to others. We see it here in, in Esau and Jacob. Esau didn't deserve the blessing in the first place, and he doesn't get it. And Jacob, well, Jacob didn't deserve the blessing either, but he does get it. 
Jacob receives the blessing. Esau receives justice. There's no injustice. And as we wrestle with this doctrine, as we mull it over in our minds, as we wrestle with the pages of Scripture and what it says, what often happens is that we we think that we know best. And as we're confronted with this doctrine, what do we want to do? We want Scripture to bend us because we mold God in our own image. We make Him say things that we want Him to say. Instead, what does this doctrine do? This doctrine makes us very small. And it makes God great. It makes Him majestic and glorious. And sometimes there is a ceiling to what we can believe, to what we can wrap our heads around, to what we can understand, and that's okay. One day we'll understand it more clearly in glory, but for now we have to be content with hitting that ceiling. So our salvation belongs to God. He executes mercy and judgment. And then this is good news. This doctrine is good news, and therefore it should change how we pray and how we evangelize. This is often one of the criticisms. Well, if God knows who's going to be saved, then we don't need to pray. We don't need to do evangelism. We just sit back. And again, that's an error. God God invites us to take part in what He is doing in the world. It's like a little child. Whenever it's mom or dad is making Rice Krispie buns, you know what it's like. The chocolate starts to be melted, and the Rice Krispies are out on the table, and the little child's starting to get a spoon or or putting its hands into the bowl, and, and there's Rice Krispies everywhere, and there's chocolate everywhere, and they're covered in head to toe, and they want to lick the spoon, and it's all a little bit of a mess. And the parents think, oh, this would have been so much quicker if I had just done this, and I didn't let you get involved. But there's great delight, isn't there? The the parents get great delight out of the children making Rice Krispie buns. The children get great delight out of the parents letting them make Rice Krispie buns. But no fun if they were just having to sit at the table on their hands. And so it is with the work of God. God delights for us to take part in it, and we delight to have a part in it. It's only by His goodness that He lets us take part. And so He says, go to prayer. The people that I've put into your life, they're put there for a very reason. You're alive in this day and age, at this very moment, surrounded by the people that are around you, the work colleagues, the family members, your neighbors, because I am sovereign, in control. I've placed them into your life, so please pray for them. Please extend the good news of the gospel to them. You don't need to worry about who's going to respond. That's my job. I'll save people. You just need to open up the invitation. Extend it to people. Be faithful in it. Don't you worry about saving them. That's my job. We want to say praise the Lord that it's His job because imagine an encounter between us and a family member, and if that family member's eternal destination rested upon our words and getting the right words in the right order— well, we would be speechless. We'd probably never sleep. I say, Lord, praise you that it's all down to you. It gives us great freedom. As we thought about this morning, Jesus says, I will build the church. You just need to devote yourselves to the teaching of the Word, the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to praying. And actually, if we dig a little bit deeper into this wonderful doctrine tonight, we actually do believe it in how we pray. 
Don't we, as we, as we pray for someone to be converted, we don't pray, Lord, help them to save themselves. Why do each of us pray, Lord, save them? Lord, open their eyes so they may see the wonder of who you are. Lord, bring them face to face with your very Son. Lord, woo them, save them, call them home, bring them to yourself. Have mercy and grace upon them. Lord, save them. Then finally, this doctrine gives us great assurance this evening. It gives us great assurance that salvation is not down to us. It's not down to our efforts, our conditions, our results. It's all down to Him. And so, a question that you may have tonight is, how do I know, John? How do I know that I'm part of this elect? If God has predestined some, how do I know if I'm part of that? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved that's it. And so, actually, to ask that question, although it comes from a good heart because you want to be part of God's people, actually, you're kind of overcomplicating it. As God, as we have thought about it, as it were, we're, we're letting us see the insides of the engine, and He's, he's showing us these things. He's given us a, a little glimpse of His glory and His majesty and His ways. He says, come to me, Repent and believe, and you shall be saved. So, what's our response? Well, let's turn back into Romans chapter 8. And I want to read this, and I want to read it slowly for us. What's going on in Romans chapter 9? Romans chapter 9 is really illustrating what Paul has said in Romans chapter 8. It's trying to help us wrap our minds around it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Scroll back up. 
who's this, who's this for? Who's, who's Jesus talking about? Who's, who's this wonderful truth for? Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See the wonder of this? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33. No one. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You are sure of your faith. He has predestined you by that. You have been predestined by the Father. You have been won by the Son. And this has been applied to you through the Spirit. And so it's true tonight that we can say that we are safe in the arms of Jesus. This is the confidence that unconditional election gives us. And then our response is that it should fuel us, propel us out in praise and wonder and exaltation of Him. Because love was His purpose. He chose because He loves us with an everlasting love. And this doctrine of election means that God loved you before anyone else loved you. The Almighty was the first person to ever love you. He made plans to take care of you eternally. God decided to give you an inheritance without asking for references or scores or second opinions. And so God loves you. He has done right from the beginning, and it will not end. I trust this evening this will take us deeper and deeper into our God and who He is. And as we close, I find this quote from Spurgeon really helpful for us. He, he, he explains, he says, I believe this doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for a reason unknown to me. For I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. That's our story, isn't it? Why us? God, you've been so good to us. And so from our very first breath, God predestined us for election, for salvation. Before we could crawl, He prepared to bring us into His family. God has not been surprised by your conversion. He planned it. He ordained it. He brought about the very events in your life so that you would be brought to such a point. He opened the eyes of your heart. He called you to Himself. He saved you by His grace. And so we run into His arms. Father, thank You. Thank You for what You have done. You have pulled me out of the bog of sin. You have set my feet upon the rock, not because of my intelligence, not because of my bank balance, not because of my looks or my influence. You have unconditionally saved me. You have absorbed me into the wonder of who you are. And so what must I do? 
I must live for you. I must live for your glory. One commentator says this, God elects a people for himself before the foundation of the world. He predestines this people to be conformed into the image of a son. He calls them to himself in faith. He justifies them through that faith alone. And then he glorifies them. And nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ forever. To him be all praise and all glory. Friends, we've only started to explore this tonight. We know there's a lot in this, but let it humble us. And then may our hearts spill over as we see the grace of God and feel the weight of this. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling.